And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hey, this is a rock and roll museum. You guys don't belong in here. <laughs> They ranted, they fainted, they eyes were glassy, some pulled their hair out, some tore their dresses, they threw notes of a very uh, undesirable nature on the stage. I'll tell you all about it. Welcome to Long Play, a podcast where nerds rock out with their Spock out. Hello and welcome to Long Play, episode 5. I am here with Paul Spataro. Hey. And we are doing, for the first... Amazingly, for the first time, a Rolling Stones album, and uh, I'm super psyched because I don't want to. I, you know, my favorite band in the world is the Beatles, and then after that, it's like I almost don't want to commit to a number two, but um, I almost and the but the Rolling Stones are almost beyond putting into number two, so I think of the Beatles as the the greatest pop band ever and i think of the rolling stones as the greatest rock and roll band of all time i go back and forth on my rock and roll between the, the stones the who led zeppelin but uh but i'm i'm on board and back you know back in the day it was uh you know there was the are you a stones guy or a beatles guy uh, but i think they were just looking for like who you prefer because they didn't have to be mutually exclusive you know you you, you were allowed to be a fan of both yeah and they were fans of each other, so I guess it was all right to be fans of both. They weren't enemies, and, and I'm sure they they had their little tiffs. But you know, and and really, I mean, out of all those bands, the the Stones and the Who have almost forged their way to the top by sheer, um, surely surviving, you know. And the the stones even more so, more intact than the. Who could? Who would have thought that Keith Richards would still be in shape to go on tour? Who would have thought Keith he, Richards would still be alive? Alive right now. <laughs> All these other people have fallen by the by the wayside, and Keith Richards is still going. I remember in the seventies, everybody thought, "Oh, this guy's not. You know, he's gone any day now. You know, he's going to be the next casualty of the rock and roll drug." Uh, explosion well they've and yet somehow he's still around science actually and it used to be sort of a stand-up comedian joke about keith richards but scientists have recently discovered that that people like keith richards are mutants mutants that their body just processes they can just do, you know he could probably just drop liquid tar into his gullet you know and his body and his liver would just go oh okay some tar and, and process it through you know 
whereas a normal person would be in the emergency room turning green and, you know, keel over. So, yeah, it's one of those things of, like, you really don't want to emulate Keith Richards, but it looks like Keith Richards can just keep being Keith Richards until, I don't know, I don't know if he'll die or just sort of dry out at some point, you know? <laughs> until they apply moisture to him again or something, or, like, vodka. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's amazing, that's all I could say. Like I said, in the 70s, we figured he'd be gone any day. Now, we uh, the album we picked, or, or actually it was it was your idea, and I glommed right onto it because... As we get into it, I'll, I'll get into the reasons why I glommed onto this one is uh, Some Girls. And and what year did this come out? It was like 74 or 75 oh, or something? 78. 78. Okay. Yeah, I was in high school when this came out. That was, that was the reason I suggested this one is I remember it coming out. It's the first Stones album that I bought brand new as it came out. See, for, for me, that was in their late, in their 80s period when they were kind of like, and like the first Stones album I remember my friends who were big Stones fans buying was the one with uh, I think it was called Undercover and it had Undercover of the Night on it which really isn't a bad album but it's very 80s and weird synth you know stuff in it and stuff like that but um so I came in and not the, the, the highest this is a great album to come in on oh my god this album is so important to me because um, I worked at a Mexican restaurant for 15 years. And in addition to the Mexi- Tex-Mex music uh, that was usually awesome, like the, or, or like just sort of flamenco-y, Flaco Jimenez type stuff, one of the CDs that was on constant ro- rotation on one of those old style, you know, six CD turntable things was uh, Some Girls by the Rolling Stones because it was my boss's favorite Rolling Stones album. So every day I heard this album at least once. Actually, a normal shift would get you, all, would get, <clears throat> get you, you know, almost twice through the rotation of all the records. This, this album was, was almost a bridge between uh, music styles because... While the Beatles and the Stones weren't mutually exclusive, rock and disco were. Yes. At the time this came out, you you were firmly in one camp or the other. They were. And I was firmly in the rock camp, and this this song this album had the, you know, in quotations the Stones disco song on it, and it somehow became the one that was okay for both groups to listen to. Yeah, and the, I the rock I mean, that's and it. disco. The the opening volley of of this album is "Miss You."
and and you know they they come right out oh, are we jumping right into that or do you want to talk more about the album itself oh it's playing right now but we can talk right. about anything we want at, at any point but just because we said the name of the song that's the magic of the podcast it's playing now but that's okay it's just our soundtrack and, and it is the opening song on the album so i guess we might as well but i i you know i know the stones themselves said it wasn't intended to be a disco song uh but it, it clearly was i mean they oh. came out with the 12-inch dance remix of it it has the disco drum beat throughout oh but yeah. i think when they say that they didn't intend it to be a disco song i think what they're saying is uh it wasn't written for that purpose it wasn't written to be okay let's make this a disco song but i think as he wrote it all of a sudden when they when it came time to to lay it out and, and figure out how to how to produce it they decided hey what if we put this drum beat in here and then basically make it into a disco song this this album has a load of stuff that's been clearly influenced by the trends of the day and with only one exception that we will get to down the road uh it, every song was influenced by the styles but was not a copy of the stuff. No, it was ro- it's Rolling Stones all the way through. And I mean, it, like saying it's not a disco song, I think maybe you could say it's... Uh, and this is one of, one of my favorite songs of all time. And I was in a band once that we did this and we did a halfway decent version of it. And when I say halfway decent, the bass player and the drum drummer were great <laughs> and I sang it so that's where it started going you know downhill fast I'm trying to say especially the falsetto parts but it's a disco song and you could totally and I'm sure there were people in discos dancing to this and you could see people dancing to it but man what a it's kind of it's not as dirty as and sleazy as the rest of the album goes but it has a, a feeling of that an atmosphere of that and a definite sadness and just sort of longing to it and uh, what the reason I was thinking you picked this one is is along with the other two albums that I think really fit well with this one Let It Bleed and Sticky Fingers especially Sticky Fingers it's got a real I mean New York City is is referenced all through this album this Yo, is like yeah. Mick Jagger hanging out in the sleaziest areas of New York City, and he starts out in a disco. And the Stones part of the song is the the story involved in it isn't dance a night away with this hot person you met. It's somebody hanging out with their friends, and they're missing somebody that they'd really that they'd be either screwed up with or or can't are separated with, and are just morose. Amidst revelry, amidst drinking, and people are procuring women for them, and they're just like, uh, I'm thinking of somebody else. Not what you really think about when you're going disco dancing, you know. It's like it's it's a love letter to New York, but yeah. being the bad boys of rock and roll, they had to make it a love letter to the sleazy side of New yes. York. Yes, and and they don't, and the the Stones were really specializing in being like we're going to be unblinking storytellers so they take you know when they write from the position of a of a character they they go from you know to the the depths <laughs> to pull it out and they don't pull any punches 
when when you talked about this being a you know like the the sadness in the song, I, I think the the sax in this really brings that out. Just the way that that it, it's that got that slow burn to it a little bit. Yeah, the whole song the whole song does, and when that sax comes out, it's almost like somebody having a little um, temper tantrum or a fit. It's very staccato and angry saxophone. Yeah, this the Stones uh, the Stones are masters of taking the music and setting not exactly a happy tone, but an exci- like a physically exciting tone, a tone that makes you want to dance or like pump your fist in the air or whatever, and then the words end up being, you know, <laughs> almost quite the opposite. And it's yeah, I think at the time, like a lot of people didn't actually listen to the lyrics. No. some of these songs, and just the kind of things that they cover in it. And and, uh, and there's when we move to the next one, I think that's a key one for that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we should we should move to the the when we're talking about sleazy and sleazy characters. Uh, uh, the second song is uh, when the whip comes down. When I was um, when I was working, uh, "Miss You" is just always one of my favorite songs because it gets your head bopping, and it's just got that that Rolling Stones are masters of that groove that instantly grabs you. And then this song, and usually when I would hear this, I would be out front waiting tables or doing something where I was running around, and then all of a sudden this song kicks in, and I I always thought this song was about like S and M. Or it was about somebody being, you know, like pussy whipped by their girlfriend or something, you know. When I think that's what most people think it is, because he sings so fast, you don't actually get what he's saying. And he does a Mick Jagger mumble, where he just like, he's he's more interested in getting the syllables out than enunciating them to where you can understand them. Whether that's purposeful or not, who knows? I guess it is because a lot of times you might either distance yourself from your audience or not be able to get played on the radio. You know, how many years did um, um, She's So Cold get played, you know, before people started figuring out some of the lyrics of that? Um, But this one, when I did my final listen for this, I pulled up the lyrics and I'm like, oh my God, this is about the lowest end gay prostitute in New York City. Describe. Well, it's, about, it's about somebody who comes from LA to New York and becomes a prostitute. Or becomes a prostitute and just, but like, not a, like a high class prostitute, like working the Bowery and the sailors and stuff. And, and, you know, the lyrics are like, when the shit hits a fan, I'll be sitting on the can. 
So that's that's the level you're you're talking. It's like low, gritty street level. Yeah, but I, I think the lyrics were almost hidden, like you say, in the Jagger mumble and the quickness of it. Yeah. And you know, the music has got you know a real edgy rock sound to it. Oh, I think this is one that was influenced by the punk rock. Yeah. And it, it's you know it's got it's 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 a very catchy tune, <laughs> and and I think the the lyrics were just kind of like passed up. And uh, there's one coming up in a little while that has more controversial lyrics than this, and I think it overshadowed this and this just kind of went you know just just slid through without anybody noticing it so much i mean it became a big hit that was their specialty <laughs> sliding that sliding that stuff in and yeah and nobody would would listen to it and yeah and having one song that's sort of a lightning rod which uh this album this album had all kinds of didn't they i i think i have my vinyl version of this if i can ever dig it out i want to when, when when I mix a show, use my vinyl to use as the the background music for it. But I think I've got the original vinyl where it has some of the faces that they ended up having to get rid of and redo it with the you know under construction signs and stuff like that. It was uh, it's very much like the physical graffiti uh, Led Zeppelin. And to all the youngsters out there who don't have any idea what I'm talking about right now, there were albums in the old days record albums you know about those but sometimes you would get these with the big bands who could afford to make special records they would do like albums with cutouts on the front and and pictures on the inner sleeve that would show through led zeppelin did it a, a couple times um but the some girls is is famous for it because their original release of it had some faces on the people that i apparently they didn't ask permission for or from commercial like clip art that they didn't ask. I'm trying to remember. I know they had Farrah Fawcett on there. Yeah, and they had to take them all down and put out. I can't a, remember specific faces, but they. Were, but I do remember that it, it was. It came out, and then they had to uh, re-release it with a different cover. And at least at the time, the original uh, artwork cover was uh, a rarity and valuable. Mm-hmm. So I don't. You, think you may have something with some value. I don't think it's as valuable anymore, but it's still, yeah, it's still more valuable than than the regular version of it. And, uh, but yeah, that or I mean, it was starting trouble right off. Yeah, apparently, right off they had the Lucille Ball, Farrah Fawcett, Judy Garland, Raquel Welsh, and Marilyn Monroe, and then they were threatened with legal action and uh, removed all the famous people. And apparently, they had George Harrison in there too. And even when they removed all the famous people, they left him in. He was probably like, sure, I don't care, you know. Yeah, I doubt he cares. So, yeah. Um, well, um, you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's um, almost every Stone song up to a point has had one, a cover song. especially This is a good stuff. one. Yeah, this one's uh, Just My Imagination, a Temptations cover.
Yeah, they managed to uh, to speed it up a little bit, add a little guitar to it, and even if you listen to it on its own, it sounds like a nice slow song, and you know it, it's you know sweet like the lyrics are and everything. But when you compare it to the original, and you hear the extra guitars in there and the uh, and, and just this, this sped up version and a little bit of Jagger's uh, delivery, and, and you could hear how they, they made it much edgier than the original one was. Well, I'm I'm gonna say something that may be a little controversial. Is in a lot of times I like the way the Stones cover the old R&B songs better than the original R&B songs. I love the I love the original. Oh, what was it Smokey Robinson singing it in the Temptations? I mean, it's beautiful. Yeah, but I just love this version, and I think they picked it because it's got some more New York City in it too. And mm-hmm. uh, the guitar, just the, um, I guess it's a flange sort of effect on the guitar is beautiful. Just very nice, um, understated at first. Keith Richards guitar and i like the way it's um like their their version of ain't too proud to beg is i think better than the original version of that too it has this like forward momentum to it and yeah i just i and i i cannot listen to this album without being brought back to like waiting tables (laughs) well if you heard it that often yeah every day but never 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 got sick of it I remember sitting in my friend Ed's treehouse and listening to some of the really early uh, tape, you know, on a little tape recorder, like, I don't know which album, but one of the first Stones album, and they were, they were doing, like, not fa- you know, Buddy Holly songs and old R&B songs. And I'd heard all those songs before and was not, like, they never caught me. But when the Stones, something about the way the Stones would hook onto a riff or you know what the basic what basically drove that song they would find you know just the bare minimum of what it was that made that song that song and then they would take it and make make it their own and sort of enhance it so the the grooves were always a little groovier and a little faster and harder and I always like that but yeah, like you said, they, they'd make it their own. And, and I, I know, you know, I, I like the old Motown music. Uh, and it's almost like these are the equivalent. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's and, and we're talking signature songs. Just My Imagination is a signature song for The Temptations. Yeah. It's not like it, it's just one of their obscure tunes that the Stones decided to do. Uh, but the two versions are very different from each other. And depending on what I'm in the mood for on a given day, they are equal uh, in my mind as far as quality goes. I mean, you know, in the history of rock, you got to put the Temptations over the the Stones version of it because it's the one that you know it's the the original, and and and, and the Stones are doing a second gener. You know, they are they're showing their. I mean, since the beginning, the Stones were always about showing who their their influences were, and this is them paying tribute to to their influences but man it goes beyond tribute they really make the song their own that's the that's the mark of a true great cover song to where i've heard lots of bands that have done great cover songs that have either sounded just like the song that they did or were very close 
but those always sort of fade away. That you listen to them a couple of times and like that was great, and then, it, you know, you just might as well listen to the original. But the people who grab onto them and make it their 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 own thing, you know, to the point of where sometimes people aren't sure, you know, people think they wrote the song originally, you know, um, like Manfred Mann with uh, "Blinded by the Light," "Blinded by the Light," or something like that, you know. Um, yeah. I think the Stones, and this album is is probably the best example of it, is if you know if you think about when popular albums come out, there's one group that's clamoring for uh, you know do something totally different because you don't want to be repeating the same thing over and over again, mm-hmm. and then there's other people probably more on the business end who are saying no that was popular do the same thing we'll sell mm-hmm. a billion copies of it, and the Stones had a way of finding that middle ground yeah taking a song like this and making it their own adding that stone style to it but not having it be total totally derivative of the stuff they've already done yeah and put and 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 it just gets the its own wrinkle to it in in the way that you know mick jagger definitely doesn't try to to copy the the singers that he's idolizes you know he takes he's confident enough to take it in his own way and the thing about it is there were a lot of i mean there was a huge um british invasion but not really the british invasion but there were a huge amount of british musicians who grew up just worshiping you know american old black american blues musicians and blues performance and motown performers and you know yardbirds type bands and bands that were going to be blues bands and stuff and the rolling stones really and the who really sort of like by far set themselves apart from the pack by not just doing like quote unquote white boy covers of these songs they put their they put the, the they they realized it wasn't about like oh i have to be a black guy who's lived a hard life it was about getting yourself in the moment of that particular song and applying it to your own experience and then make it, making it your own cuz blue songs are made for almost i mean you could be a poor sharecropper on in front of your shack or you could be up in a penthouse and have the same problems <laughs> you know money and women and 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 liquor and you know, or whatever you know and all the combinations thereof um and and those ba- and the who and the stones really understood and had the confidence to do that to where they weren't just emulating the bands you know they didn't they, they were um a lot you you hear a lot of them during and and granted the people in the band were probably like 16 years old and stuff where but you know you have people singing the songs and it just sounds it sounds not quite to the level of um oh what the hell is this pat boone or something like that you know of whiteified <laughs> but it's kind of squared out you know they've they've learned how to do their their dent their Bo Diddley beat or something but it's still very kind of rigid and 
you know, like the like the in the seventies, like all in eighties, all the black comedians used to be like, you know, black people be like this, or white people be like this <laughs> type of thing. But not with the Stones and the and the Who. They actually the Stone the Who more with you know sort of um, blue eyed soul so the soul aspect of it and the the Stones with the blues aspect of it. But um, they hung. They they hang with with the best. They you know the Stones can hang with Chuck Berry, on uh, and and Muddy Waters. You know, the early you know blues and rock. Uh, I th- I think the Who were incredibly talented. I love the Who. I love their music. Like I said, they're right up there with me. Uh, and they were incredibly innovative with things like Tommy and Quadrophenia. But I don't think their music had the range that the Stones did. You know, the 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 Stones could go from you know uh, sympathy for the devil to uh, jumping Jack Flash to fool to cry. Yeah, and and I don't I don't think the the Who's music showed that same kind of range. Fool to cry. That's a great song. More great Mick Jagger falsetto. I, I th- yeah, I think I think the Stones weren't afraid to experiment, and it was kind of like if you don't like it, you know, too bad. <laughs> yep, yep. This is what we're not, doing. That the, not that the Who was out there just trying to please everybody; they weren't. But uh, like I said, I think their innovations went in a different way with the theme albums. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, with the, the you know basically you know a lot of this stadium rock, which they were kind of one of the originators of. The, the Who had a, but they had a real talent for like their version of Heat Wave that they would do live and stuff was always and stuff like that. But they had their own sort of sound that evolved. But they were, yeah, they were more in in into that sort of format of it. Where yeah, the Stones, you had no idea what was going to come out as the next Stones album. You know, it, whether it was. To the point of where they had, you know, when they burned that one um, radio, uh, record contract up by putting out the, the last song they put out contractually was uh, called Cocksucker Blues. <laughs> that they had a contract to make a movie, so they made they made a movie of the same name, so that they basically could never release them, and uh, just sort of screwed the. Uh, they, they were definitely working on the bad boy thing. The the who were more angry, but the Stones were just mean and bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, the who were, were angry with a reason. The Stones were mean for no reason. Well, yeah, the 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 Stones were just ar- arrogant and up their own ass, and you know they played the full, you know whether it's a show or for real, and you know, they played the full fame card as much as they could. Which actually, I think, is a good lead-in to the next song, to where we're going with the next song, which is the title track, uh, Some Girls. Girls' heart attacks 
and it is the most controversial song on the album. Would it, uh, how could this song even fly today, even if it wasn't like released as a single? Oh no! This this would there would be such a, a backlash for a, for a song like this now. That uh, do you think you they know, could they, get Mick Jagger gone. to s- apologize for for these lyrics these days? Well, his apology was one of those half-assed apologies. Oh, he did have to. The, okay. The the apology was almost like I'm sorry that you were offended by yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Not I'm sorry that I did something that was offensive. <laughs> uh, you know, he his his argument was that he was just trying to. Uh, play on and make fun of the stereotypes yeah he hits he hits on it's very much like lenny bruce when on his favorite and on his famous n-word routine where he he you know that that he he asked if there were any n-words in the audience and you hear dead silence and he starts like quantifying everybody in the audience by their you know their ethnic slur name and then the laughter slowly rises because they realize he's just like working every stereotype here and that's i mean obviously this is it's it would be hard to believe that anybody believes (laughs) for real what he's saying in this the generalizations he's making but at the same time they're hilarious you know they're it's it's rude and crude and sleazy it's got a little racism a little sexism venereal diseases paternity suits divorce lawyers the whole thing it just it's basically the sleazier aspect of relationships around the world they had to be courting the controversy because why else would you make it the title song it's it's almost a troll you know these days you would call it a troll it's almost just like i'm gonna throw this out there and i'm gonna make all I mean, at this point, I don't think anybody in the Rolling Stones was really worried that they were going to turn off enough women and not have access to the ladies. So, you really felt, I mean, that a lot of the songs in this were autobiographical. And and you walk away just feeling like all these guys want to do is do drugs and get laid. Yeah. <laughs> like that's well, that's and, the autobiography right there. Yeah, and and... Yeah, and just enjoy the finer things of fame. And this song reminds me of, like, say, the band and some roadies and stuff, hanging out, drinking booze from the bottle, and just discussing, you know, what the, as of course, of the Rolling Stones, they've gone on world tours, and it sounds like a bit of, you know, backstage locker room commentary, you know, of just somebody... Going oh well, in French, French girls want this, you know. I, it's, it, but it, the greatest is I think the American girls get the greatest punchline of the whole song. The American girls want everything, right? <laughs> American girls want everything in the world that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's the what, what is it about? They they bring you. Uh, they bring you a baby even though you've only been with them once yeah. and they want half your money. Yep. And uh, I mean, black girls want to get fucked all night. I just don't have the jam. Ink. Well, that's that's the line that caused the controversy. Yes. Right? Yes. And uh, and Chinese girls are so gentle. And the, there's uh, Eng- he can't stand the way English girls sound snotty on the telephone. It, it, it's just yeah, it's just rankling rankling <laughs> the female community 
out 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 there or the feminist community to, to so we can include any of the men who got pissed off at it but i you know but this song was a song that every everybody in the restaurant was just would sing along with the you know give me all your money <laughs> <laughs> i mean what do you expect it's it's just the most cynical song about women ever <laughs> i think Without being like a bitter, angry screed, it's a it's a co- drunken, sleazy comedy. I mean, it just it's everything sort of the Stones stand for, except for hard rocking. You know, it's a drunken sing along, like Sweet Virginia or or something like that. I love it. I love. I mean, so far we're four for four on this album of like awesome awesome can't get enough of them songs yeah but i think that comes to a screeching halt on the next one unfortunately on lies Yeah, I'm not a fan. Oh, I think this song, this is another punk rock in... Oh, it's clearly a punk rock influenced one. And uh, I, I think it's ironic because he's talking about like his girlfriend cheating on him. Yeah, yeah. Which, which Mick Jagger was, you know, I mean, renowned as being somebody who was sleeping all over the place. Yeah, but maybe so he's worried he didn't about lie about it. Hmm? Maybe he didn't lie about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think he did. I, I think he was just all over the place and was like, that's who I am. Deal with it. My notes are this song speaks for itself and then rocks balls. It, it's definitely got the, the music I like. I mean, the, the words just don't do anything for me. The the way that they, uh, I don't know, the vocals on the chorus also really don't do anything for me. The music I like. But the, you know, I, I could do without the lyrics altogether, to be honest with you. This is, this is a, a great example of Rolling Stones drums and why is his name i keep wanting to say bill wyman oh uh but it's not bill wyman no it's i try to think of his name in his big band to always remember his name charlie watts oh yeah yeah um, who, who you know on a group that they've all you know they're all like 70 years old now charlie watts looked like he was 70 back he's, then. he was old he was he was older than all of them back then too he was like an older guy he was kind of into jazz when they were doing it but man he's got an attitude but a lot of times like Ringo you might not be paying attention to him and he might not be doing anything flamboyant but he's he it he's he's just got an attitude and it comes out like this 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 is one of those songs where his you know his drums it's not like a Led Zeppelin song where you want to play air drums to him but they're just so propellant of 
these kinds of songs and he's whereas if a punk band was doing this the drummer would be banging the hell out of the drum set to to do this and rightly so it would sound awesome but he doesn't he's restrained all the time even when he's playing fast and hard he's not beating the hell out of his drum set but well, it I, feels I felt, like it i always felt that and you know take it from where it's coming i don't play an instrument i don't read music uh my my knowledge of music is more i know what i like uh but it always sounded to me like guys like him and Ringo would kind of take command of the song. And when the guitarist started going a little off, he'd pull them back. Yeah. Whereas like Keith Moon was just the opposite. He would go wild. You just hook your chain to him and go. Thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, you see, I, I don't play drums and I would probably be a horrible drummer as a foundation of rhythm. But we used to have this guy who was a fantastic drummer, and he was like a squatter at our apartment in college. And he was this big, fat, lazy guy, but you would roll him off the couch every two weeks to play in the band that would play in our living room during the parties. And he was just could play anything and was just really good. And he would practice by playing along with rock albums, mostly Frank Zappa because it had complicated stuff that kept him working, but sometimes he would throw on some some stones or some or some who and stuff like that. And he loved, you know, explaining to us why he, you know, would practice what what aspects of his drumming he would be using to practice certain things that he'd learned and he always used the stones to practice the jazz stuff that he'd learned because there were always little jazz things in it that he used in a rock context and he would always you know he would always point out notice you know when you watch video of this guy he's he doesn't hold his sticks the same way and he's not using his whole arm to smash down on something to get volume he's just working the dynamics on a certain level and stuff like so I picked up a lot of he hated to play Beatles he hated to try to play Ringo because it sounded well, so Ringo simple Ringo is, is not so easy to recreate it sounds simple to recreate and you can play the songs that Ringo did but if you're trying to emulate Ringo and make it sound right it's next to impossible and uh you know, people would be yelling out requests and the, the guitar player who was sort of the leader of that band would be like, oh, let's do a Beatles song. And he, and he would go, no, and sort of scrunch <laughs> up his face. Oh. No. Whoa, you have a problem with the Beatles? I love the Beatles. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I can uh, give you my, my little Frank Zappa experience, because you mentioned him. Uh, you know, the only thing I knew about Frank Zappa was uh, Sheik Your Booty. Oh, yeah. A classic Jewish princess. Yeah, which, which I mean, I loved that at the time. But Might I, as well I stay know, with your mama. I didn't really know his uh, Dancing Fool was the Dancing Fool. But uh, one, of, one of my buddies got tickets to see him at one of the small venues in Manhattan. And somebody bailed at the last minute. He said, oh, you want to go tonight? We're going to see Frank Zappa. So I went along. Not knowing anything that he played, oh. but and and I still couldn't tell you what songs he played, <laughs> right? Because I didn't know his his yeah his song at all. 
But what I can tell you is he amazed me and was awesome the entire night. I was sitting there like, you know, my mouth wide open, just in amazement at how good he and his band were and how, how they just pulled me in the whole night. Usually, you know, I mean, it was almost like a slow, kind of like a bluesy, I couldn't even give you much more of a description than that, but just, you know, one of these things where you're just watching and it's like, wow, these guys are really tight and, and they all know what they're doing. I mean, he must have, the, the, the musicians he had around them must have all been Top great. shelf, but not just top shelf musicians because he'd had tours where he had super crack, you know, crack studio people involved, but you had to have a certain frame of mind to be a Zappa musician too. You had to be really, really good and learn incredibly complicated parts, but you had to be ready to improvise too or to do variations of it. I mean, when he did a, did a stage show, no two shows were the same and the way he would do it is he would literally have this big rock band where anything from the size of a small orchestra to like an eight, eight to ten piece band and he had complicated hand gestures and body language stuff to tell people what to do, whether it's, you know, vaguely or very specifically. And then they would see how fast or slow to do it by his, his hand movement. And would and so you had to be playing these complicated things and watching Frank Zappa do it. And sometimes he would be like, point at you and be like, say something funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and but, but these these guys were right on the ball. They were they ready were to go. Yeah, him, they were able to do whatever. You know, when they when they went off script, you'd never know it was off script no. unless you unless you had heard them perform that same song before in a different way. Yeah, yeah, and I mean Frank Zappa, like his his family has, you know, probably another generation's worth of releases of stuff that he recorded, you know, live. He recorded every live show and stuff like that. And, you know, there'll be there'll be unheard Frank Zappa coming out for decades and decades. <laughs> and and has been since he, he started. It's his career is I'm sure we're gonna get some Frank Zappa going on uh there might be a little fight as to how as to who gets to do Frank Zappa <laughs> Uh, That's one, you know. He has I, plenty of albums, so we could it. all do some. So, I'd be very interested in it, but I don't think I have the knowledge to sit there with you and talk about it. I'd rather just be sitting listening to you, to hear what you have to say. It's almost like, would you rather have a Zappa head do it, or somebody who's just, you know, it might be fun to have a Zappa head and somebody who's just sort of listening to it with, with fresher ears too, you know, especially an album like Shake Your Booty, which is more ex accessible than some of his more hardcore weirdness ones. But, What's the song of that I remember? Bobby Brown? Yes. Say I'm the cutest boy around. Um, my hair is my hair is slick. My teeth are shiny. I tell all the girls I can kiss my hiney. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Sorry to take us so far afield. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So the I, I think we'll go into the next song. Sunday morning through Bakersfield 
listening to gospel music on the colored radio station. And the preacher said, you know, you always have the Lord by your side. And I was so pleased to be informed of this that I ran 20 red lights in his honor. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Um, Far Away Eyes. Most fun song on the album. It's classic Stones, faux country style, goofy, goofy ass vocals of Jagger doing an American accent. (laughs) Told me to send $10,000. But he uh, did, like where I said, they, they would let their influences move them, but then they would make it. A stone song at heart. Yeah. This one they didn't even bother with that. This one they said we're going to make an out-and-out parody of a country music song, and apparently they loved country music. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, their their country songs. I like. See, I love the way they do country songs too. They have a little. They never sound. They're always have a bit of parody and humor to them. A lot of the time, like country honk or. Uh, Sweet Virginia, you know, like I uh, got to scrape the shit right off your shoes. Something kind of funny and little, little sketchy about it, and like the the really exaggerated Southern accents. But it never comes off as mocking, and I always just love their country songs. This song is, this song is like instrumentally is not much going on to it, but it's just. A fun, drunken, sing-along sort of song. I thought the background steel guitars sounded actually pretty good on this one. Oh yeah. Oh no, they're they and they sound like authentic. You know, those are that's beautiful. That's the steel guitars in these are more country sounding than steel guitars in modern country hits. You know, as far as I'm concerned, they're just awesome because keith richards probably understood that when you record them you just stand like 30 feet back from the mic (laughs) and play it with the room's reverb in it it just sounds it sounds like they're in a room sitting around uh singing it and and like the stones i i I get the impression that it's about like a drug addicted truck truck stop hooker that's what the faraway eyes are she's just glazed from doing drugs and sleeping with truckers in the truck stop and he just happened that's, to find her <laughs> i think you know that's that's just subtext a little bit there and i think you know he comes right out and he's making fun of like the evangelists on the on the radio right. that he's heard and, well, that's the it, thing is you're you're driving down and they you know that you're driving down route you know 66 and you turn on the radio and all you hear is Jesus, 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 and every truck stop is full of hookers and speed. You know, in those days, that's what the, all the hookers were. There were hooker. There still are hookers hanging out at the truck stops, and the truck stop truck drivers taking you know wake up pills. <laughs> to, I mean, to, the, the, I'm just looking at some of the lyrics here. I was driving home early Sunday morning through Bakersfield, listening to gospel music on the colored radio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the colored radio station. Already making friends. Yeah. And the preacher said, you know, you always have the Lord by your side. 
and I was so pleased to be informed of this that I ran 20 red lights in his honor. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lloyd. <laughs> I mean, he had to be writing that. He had to be cracking up laughing as he was writing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's somebody listening to the Jesus station and breaking the law and looking for hookers. <laughs> Which actually segues so beautiful into the next song which is uh, respectable. What do you think of this one? Another clearly punk rock influence. Yeah, song. yeah. you know, definitely a down and dirty rocker. Uh, as far as the, I think they were almost making fun of themselves for being too respectable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that they're supposed to be again the bad boys and that you know they're they're, they're too you know almost too mainstream for themselves. Uh, but the the rock. You know the the rock in the music, the rock music or the rock beat to it and everything. I think is great, and that's apparently uh, we could thank Richards for that because they said when Jagger wrote it, he envisioned it as being a much slower song, and and that Richards insisted that they move that they speed it up. Oh no, this is great. I I, I somewhere I have in the '90s it was a big trend for sort of indie punkier bands to do tribute albums to certain bands. They probably sold a lot. And one of them was called Stoned Again. And it was all these bands, there were maybe two that I'd heard of and all these, you know, just sort of indie bands doing Stones covers. And one was an all-girl punk rock band doing Respectable. And oh boy, did that song, was that song suited for a punk rock girl band Mm -hmm. to be singing in a real, and they did it in the sort of real snotty delivery, you know? And I could easily hear uh, Patty Smith sing. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And right, and right from this, and and that's New York City, right from this time period too. And uh, boy, I, I just I love this song. It, it, it's in the lyrics, you know, talking about taking heroin with the president, and they use the word porn, which I didn't think of any at, at first. But then I'm like, they didn't really, really use the word porn. In, in those days as much as pornography it's bit that's porn is more of a they were sort of ahead of the the curve well, they, they could uh, have rhymed they would call them porn theaters they could have rhymed pornography with well-respected member of society so easily too but uh yeah i lo- and when this one would be playing in the restaurant everybody nobody listened to any of the lyrics but everybody hooked on to the just take my wife don't come back part they just <laughs> the, take my wife which is funny, that's like Borscht Belt comedian line in the middle of their their punk 
which isn't too far outside of New York City, really. Well, I, I think uh, just going back to like the the tempo on the song, I think from what I had read about it, that Jagger was a little upset about it because he thought that the faster tempo made people take the lyrics less seriously, made it seem more lighthearted. Okay, maybe. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, Mick Jagger knows a lot more about how to put music together than I yeah. do. But I mean, but it I, does. It, I, I do think that, that Richards was right on this one because I, I like it as the rocker that it is. And I don't take the lyrics like seriously. It's not like a gimme shelter type song. I, it definitely seems like a, a fun sort of just mocking, hey, we're rock and roller, wild rock and roller song. But when you read the lyrics, I don't think it really lends itself to being a deep or serious song. The, the lyrics are, I mean, they're fun, but they're not especially, they're, they're, they're definitely not the best lyrics on this. I think the lyrics in the whip, when the whip comes down are more, uh, complex and shaded and interesting than this one, but you can't understand those ones. Whereas this one, you mm -hmm. can understand it, but they're just they're they're just fluffier, you know. I guess they're not bad. They're just not, you know, they're they're more of a fun set of lyrics. And I think Keith Richards was was right in this case. I would love somewhere. There's probably takes of them doing this. If I was like. I'm not into the stones as much and maybe I will be as I find them, but like, you know, to where I've explored like bootlegs and alternate takes and stuff like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if, and uh, maybe I'll do a little look for the, the, see if there's a slower version of this to see how it, how it played that way. Be really I, interesting. I would bet that there is because there was, there were quite a few sessions from, uh, this time period that were put together on some you know bootleg albums at that time. Uh, well, and I'm pretty sure there was, there was a double album of of you know other takes of songs. Oh yeah, and when I was and as I was listening to these, I, um, a lot of times I was listening to them on YouTube. They would be these remastered versions that almost had another whole album's worth of you know unreleased songs from the same time period that didn't make it onto the album that I'd never heard before. And I mean, there. I think it was like 2009. All these got that remastered treatment with all the bonus material on them and stuff. So yeah, and all that stuff was probably on bootlegs before that. All yeah, right. They had, a, they had a bonus disc with 12 songs on it. Jeez. There's only 10 on the album. Right. I know. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. It's longer than the album. It was. It was the like when I was listening to it, it was like an hour and 40 minutes or something like that. And I mean. Really, the average I, you you never really heard albums that were more than ninety minutes in in those days, and they usually weren't. A rock and roll album was usually probably more like sixty to seventy, you know, thirty minutes, thirty five minutes per side. Most most uh, most rock albums you could fit on a tape in less tape. less than forty five minutes. You know, it was very common in that at that time period to have ninety minute cassettes. Yeah, and you put two albums one on each side oh that's right yeah each side was probably like around 22 minutes a piece each side of the album yeah. yep you're right you're right I, for some reason i was thinking one side of the album on each side of the cassette but that's completely wrong that was the 45 minute cassettes and those those wouldn't always line up just right 
because you'd have one side that would be 25 minutes and one side that would be 19 minutes. And then, you know, you'd have to start messing around with pulling a song from one side, putting it on the other. other. It was was much easier to have 90 minutes and put one out on each side. I used to like, I remember Abbey Road was just longer than 90 minutes. And I had, or it was a white album. One of the two of them, I had to change song orders around to get them all onto a 90-minute tape, and I actually had to, like, stop the tape and start it again and try to cut out this. I was trying to cut out the silence, the time of silence in between tracks to get it to fit on a 90-minute tape. And what I ended up doing, I think, was just leaving out Revolution Number 9 altogether, and that cleared out enough space to fit everything in. But yeah, it was also the louder the song nine was just a little too out there for me anyway. Yeah, the the lo- also on records the louder the song is the more gro- the more groove space it takes up. So like a quiet classical album, you could have a 9500 minute classical album, you know, with with more than a half hour on each side because it's quieter, but rock albums the louder they were, <laughs> the shorter they were. Um all right, well moving on we're going into the um, let's pull Keith Richards out of his box and prop him up for his one song before they make me run. I love it too. I, I love all this, the Keith Richards songs. This song, I can never have this song played without a smile on my face. I love this song. Because when it starts, whenever this happens, it's like seven songs in, and I just start smiling because I'm like, oh, here it, it's like the Ringo song on a Beatles album. It's like, yeah, it's yes. exactly what I was thinking. Here he is. Keith's like, I listen, I'm going to sing one song every, every album. I don't care. You sit out this song, it's mine. And, the, and it, the two that stand out are this one and Happy. Happy is, I think, his greatest of all. Happy, when I was a kid, I didn't even realize it was Keith Richards singing it. I thought it was just Mick Jagger being a little different with his voice. Mm, I can see that. Because there is more in the way of backing vocals. On yeah. It's a, this is just him, really. This Usually his songs are a little stripped down. They're just more fun. They're usually like Joe Walsh. They're like a statement of purpose. They're like, hey, I'm just here having a good time. This one's like, I'm going to come start trouble, but I'm going to know when to leave before <laughs> before they come with the torches for me. And Let's say, I, I think you hit it on the nose with similar to, to kind of the Ringo songs. This is the but, Octopus's uh... Garden of <laughs> some girls. 
and and I mean it, it's pretty cool like the lyrics and everything it's going it's a little autobiographical because this is when he was having uh, some serious problems with having been arrested for heroin possession in Canada and at the time they thought he was going to go away for some serious time and it was kind of like let's get this album done before you go before he goes to the who's gal as it turns out just for the for completeness uh they took it easy on him and uh what they did was they had him do a charity concert right and that was that was his penance so he never did do any jail time for it but at the time they had it hanging over his head and it looked like he was going to go away for a while yeah uh, too rich <laughs> Yeah, well, I think what they did was they they came to the conclusion that, you know, he wasn't really a threat to anybody. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there wasn't a lot to be gained by putting him in jail. So they they thought it was, you know, much more uh, favorable to everybody involved to have him do this charity concert. And I think the charity was something with, you know, drug control or whatever. Drug awareness. Something very ironic. (laughs) I wonder if they did this song. (laughs) (laughs) I would would bet he did. His his songbook isn't so large that he would skip it. I'd like to see the song list of it. I'm betting it's all like Chuck Berry songs and stuff like that, but it could be, he could have put on a very ironic concert. (laughs) But I have a feeling if I were him, I would not, I would not play around with it too much. I would be like, okay, (laughs) Well, I think he was, I think he was, you know, like I said, I think it was a very serious threat. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, there was a real chance that he was going away for a while. So I think when they, when they came up with the, uh, the punishment that they did, I, I'm sure he wiped some sweat off his forehead and was thrilled. <laughs> then it went, got wasted. <laughs> but, but between this and Faraway Eyes, uh, it, it's just two of the most fun songs and they're close together in, on the album, but not back to back, which I think is perfect. Mm-hmm. And once again, back to back we're, too much. We're in the land where they designed albums. Yeah, that's, that's flow about to this them. that I was thinking as I listened to it. Is this 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 was, you know, A O R album oriented rock. Yes. This wasn't, uh, you know, let's see how many singles we can get off this album. Uh, you know, they, they they were trying to put together to get a certain feel from the album and to, to create a certain rhythm as you went through it. Uh, it was meant to be listened to from beginning to end. It wasn't meant to be, you know, a couple of songs that were going to make it to the Greatest Hits album, even though that is There are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean the, obviously the hits on this definitely work out of context with the rest of the album, but they aren't hits thrown in. With a bunch of filler that 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 stand out from, they work right in with the flow of the whole album. And maybe it's because of repetition or something, but the flow of this album is so burned into my head. And speaking of flow, let's flow into the next song, man. Which is speaking of iconic singles, Stones hits, um, Beast of Burden.
this, this one I think holds up with the greatest of Stone songs, period. I think when, when you start putting together, you know, like your, your list of the top Stone songs, it does. It isn't necessarily number one or number two, but it's right there on the list, and it's frequently uh, over the years been on the uh, the lists, like when they would do on Labor Day, where they do you know the top X number of songs of all time. This song is usually on that list somewhere. This, this is like this. This is one of those Stone songs that this could be their cover of a famous Motown song, but it isn't. They made their own famous Motown song. And this song is like one of those songs that it's been covered a lot and redone by them, like when he redid it with um, Tina Turner and stuff mm. and stuff like that. It's, yeah, it's a iconic song. It's It somehow, you know, transcends all, it has just simple lyrics you know and it can be transferred into almost any kind of you know whatever kind of band you have you could do a version of this song it, you, it, whether it be a reggae band or just like a regular pop band or a, a sweet you know a band featuring a really sweet singer you know it's it's got anything you need as far as it's, it's been covered many times and I think the most famous person to cover it is also the one that you scratch your head and you think, really? That, you know, this person did this song? Bette Midler. Yes. Did a cover. That, that actually got as high as number 71 on the Billboard charts. Which, you know. I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, kind of, she kind of tore it up. Yeah, you, you would, that's not somebody who you'd picture covering a Stone song. It's, it's just got that. It, it, once again, not disco, but funky. There's there's real funk to this song. In yes, the same I, way again, that Stevie I don't, Wonder. I don't, music. I don't you know I don't know about music. I just know what I feel. But the beat to this almost sounds like it's off. Yeah. And it's it's almost like a like a reverse of what it should be. Yes. And, but, and that's one of the things that just is so catchy about it. Yeah. Once again, Charlie Watts just being cocky. And, but not, you know, he's subtle, but it's, it's hard to describe because it's, it's a dichotomy sort of thing. You know, he's loud, but he's not, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's rocking, but he's not hitting it hard. It's just this, it's, it's a whole thing where it derives from his personality and his style. And it, and that's, I mean, that's the definition of everybody in the Rolling Stones and why they were like the Beatles is everybody in it. You can hear, you know, when if you take the band and tear it up into pieces and stick it into other bands, you could be like, oh, Keith Richards is in this band or, you know, there's Mick Jagger singing or there's Charlie Watts playing drums. But then when you put put them together, it automatically becomes its own magical thing where they're all working together, yet they're all able to be in their own their their own thing you know their their personality is integral to the appeal of it and the backing vocals on this are you know just like just not what you picture from the stones but just really complements the song well too well they want i mean the the thing is is mick jagger's got the sweet voice in the stones but all the rest of them are big fans of the they're all fans of the same kind of music so 
all the rest of the guys wanted to sing some really sweet, you know, Motown backup vocals. But it's sort of like the Grateful Dead. It's just not in the cards for, for Mick Jagger and Ron Wood and and stuff. But what they do come up with is awesome because they work within the limitations of their voices and they're there emotionally, you know, and they're yeah. in tune. <laughs> yeah, which, which says a lot. To it. Yeah, <laughs> and they're, they're in tune, which and everybody knowing the personalities of the band are just like, hey, all right, <laughs> good going, guys. It's that misunderestimated thing. But, uh, oh, yeah, this song um, we used to do with our band, this show called The Diva Show, where we would just um, ask women to to come and sing songs. And this was a perennial. There was always someone, this, I Will Survive, and one of three Janis Joplin songs were pretty much somebody would always leap on them right away. And this was my favorite one to do because this was the most interesting and soulful of, of those three songs. I thought, and I, and I always enjoyed, we did like three different versions of Beast of Burden and I always enjoyed hearing how each different singer. I don't know why, but for some reason I always, when the song is over, I always feel like it was more of a rocker than it is. When I listen to it, I'm always amazed by how slow and soulful it is. But if you were do the thing about it is it's got all the, the it's got the, the the approach that Jagger takes of it is if you're doing that song like live with an audience, you can make it sort of rock because it's got this propulsion to it emotionally. So if you're singing it with enough, um, um, Bette Midler made it rock, you know, and she wasn't doing like a rockin' version of it, but she was selling it. And it's and because this is a song of somebody trying to sell themselves to a woman, you know, up to a point. It's almost very similar in tone to Meatloaf's I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. And this is him just, you know, being like, I'll do, you know, I will put myself in all these positions up to this point, you know, for 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 this woman. And uh this is also one of my favorite misheard lyrics. I have a friend who always thought this song was I'll never leave your pizza burning. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, All right. Should we go to the last one? I hate to finish off this album. I hate, I hate for this album. And this album is only like I think 40 the whole minute song. Was- I think it's a little shorter. I think it was thirty-eight. I think yeah, so. it's 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 really short. It's short it album, out. but it's it's one of the. I mean, really, it's one of the the greatest albums. Period. And end of sentence. Um, I can't. I, I'm one of the one of the recent albums we did was also very very short. The end. <laughs> oh, incredibly amazing, but. Yeah, now we get to the last song, which is also one of my favorites, uh, Shattered. 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 
Future Doobie. Another, another heavily punk rock influenced song. Super, super. I mean, th- this is very unusual for um, album oriented rock where they end. Where usually, a lot of times, maybe not the best song would be put towards the end or one of the more quieter or introspective. Usually, there's a ballad at the end. Yeah, yeah. Something, something to sort of, you know, not bring you down, like bring down your mood, but bring things down and 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 segue out. Not here. It, it would have been more traditional to end this with just my imagination. I or just my imagination or miss you, and it, I, if I was in the studio when they were putting this together. I probably would have gotten in fights with them of putting Shattered as the first song and Miss You as the last song because both of them sort of encapsulate the feel of of the seedy side of New York City. This, I mean, Shattered is a pure New York City song and Miss You is kind of a pure New York City song mm-hmm. but Miss You has that, is, is that slow haunting thing where you would think you'd want to sort of put it at the end as sort of like the piece de resistance or whatever is just sort of um but no they put this a real short song just fast um i, I think they, they made the right decision because i think yeah. miss you would have gotten lost at the end yes whereas it was highlighted by having it early yeah uh this song what, what i always say about this song is this is when the rolling stones invented uh, rapping yeah I mean, he sang it, he didn't just rhyme it, but the way the lyrics are presented in this song, it, it, it really does have that chant that, that he must have influenced rap artists at some point. Uh, well, he and, goes and it's into, the first song of this nature that I can think of. When you read the lyrics to the song and you listen to the music of it, and if you're a singer and like, I'm going to sing Shattered, you can go and sing the lyrics right to the beat of the song, and they fit into the beat of the song. You know, somebody, he thought about the number of syllables he was using to fix in with the the beat of the song. But he doesn't follow that when he's doing it because sometimes he's straight up talking. So he's not hitting the beat when he's hitting the words that would would hit the beat in. So, So it takes on this, it's, if, if you try to, sing slash talk along with Mick Jagger, it becomes very hard. Your brain wants to put it in the, the syllables of the the words. And yeah, it is very, very, very rap-like. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of examples of stuff like this. Not like this. <laughs> but of people yeah. sort of talking, talking over, you know, but yeah. Yeah, way, way, way ahead of its time. And, uh, and maybe, maybe it's a little hypocritical of me because I love this song, but I hate rap. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but but it, like I said, that, that was, that's always been my take on it. This, this is when the Stones invented rap. Well, I'm hoping when I finally get to the rap albums that I have planned for long play that I might be able to win over a few, few converts, at least to certain types of rap. Because there's just yeah, there's the, the the problem with rap is a lot of the stuff that people get thrown in their faces just typically horrible, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, I don't know who was talking about it. I heard somebody talking about it recently, and it might have even been you. 
uh, and it was saying something to the effect of it was about know, talking it, about the Transformers. I think you're you're thinking of where it's just like you could I could it was it where I was like I could convert you to rap music, but do you really want to? <laughs> do you want to well, take well, the effort? Yeah, that's almost the argument. It's it's if there's eight thousand rap songs out there, there may be fifty that you'd love, mm-hmm. but you'd have to listen to them mm-hmm. to get to the fifty that you love, and you don't want to. So why bother? You have to work. You have to work for it. And there's there's so many. I mean. Every there, uh, um, almost any genre that exists in the world of anything, of any media. There's probably examples of it that will appeal to you, but you know how are you? You know, are you obligated, <laughs> but to be so well-rounded that you have to try every, every who has time, yeah, to try everything. So you just sort of have to go for what you viscerally like, and then work off of that. You know. Or you don't have to, but that's what I think most people do out of necessity and convenience. And what I've been exposed to, I don't like. <laughs> so it is nothing that makes me say, hey, I, I hear a grain of something I like there. Let me listen to some more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know and, and it's it's life experience. I, I, the first rap music that I heard that I was like, I love this. Besides, you know, the occasional song on MTV that... Usually I liked it because the video was fun too, but um, was because I was trying to get into some girl's pants and I was hanging out at her apartment all the time and she had this one album that she played over and over again and then one song stuck and then, you know, and then after a while, and now it's one of my favorite albums in the world, but it was motivated by the urge to, uh, to uh, hook up with this girl, you know. And there's, there's no question that a lot of musical tastes are heavily influenced by exposure. Yes. What you grew up hearing An is... association. I love some 70s disco songs because I associate them hanging out at uh, this camp that was uh, that was on Lake Ontario. With You know, my parents would go out there to hang out with them and we would hang out with their kids. And you'd hear, you know, Starland Vocal Band doing uh, Afternoon Delight. I and just love that because like they they had no idea what that song yeah. was talking about and they would do it on like Lawrence Welk and stuff. Yes. I can't remember. We just saw something on Lawrence Welk. Some song that they did from that time period that... Uh, I think oh, that one took over the line. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because they say Sweet Jesus in it. It's okay. They didn't say <laughs> Sweet Jesus in, in the Lawrence Welk version. Though they changed yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. They, they took out the Jesus part and and you know had him talking to a generic girl or something but yeah yeah <laughs> very strange <laughs> but it did happen they, they never listened to it closely enough to know what they were talking about either that or they did either that or one or two of the people did and just thought that they could uh they could slip it by and you know granted in the old days people took tokes off of uh off of bottles too so they might have thought they were just being edgy in a drinking sort of way. Yeah, <laughs> Either way, it was an odd moment in in, uh, in Lawrence Welk. I don't know. I'll see if I can dig up some Lawrence Welk Rolling Stones songs. I really, uh, <laughs> really doubt I'm going to find it. Thank you very much. Now, here's an attractive couple, Gail Farrell from Durand, Oklahoma, Dick Dale from Algona, Iowa. Excuse me, let's listen to Gale and Dale and one of the newer songs. 
One toke over the line, sweet Jesus, one toke over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one toke over the line. Waiting for the train that goes home, sweet Mary, hoping that the train is on time. Sitting downtown in a if you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan, on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.